everybody. You're listening to The Rock Podcast with Fox and Maya. Thanks for supporting the show. This is a show with adult content, so if you're not of legal age where you live, then turn off now. This podcast is about rock bondage. Rock bondage is edge play with inherent risk, and we strongly recommend you get proper training and listen to episode zero before attempting it. Find out at the top of our FetLife page, Rock Podcast. Maya, the first thing I'm excited about today is that this is our first sponsored episode. Oh, okay. Sponsored by? This episode is sponsored by Friction Live, and we want to thank them very much for their support. Friction Live hosts live kink classes through the internet. There's a lot of rope things and also some of our kink scales that mix well with rope, so I'm sure our dear listeners will be interested in checking them out. It's very useful to be able to access live kink education no matter where you live, especially if, like us, you live in Thailand, because there's not so much of that going around. Uh, We've taken a few of their video classes together, and we found them very good, didn't we? We did. We enjoyed them a lot. So our listeners can find out more at their website, frictionlive.ca, because they're in Canada. Okay. Uh, They can also listen to episode 66, where we did a test drive of one of their classes. Super. And you are a wicker. I am, Maya. And I am a bottom. You are indeed. And we're rock partners who've been practicing together for about four yeah. years. And also power exchange partners, we which are, will be relevant which today. Which is very relevant today. We're a 24-7 couple, and I am collared to Fox. Um, and we love sharing rope um, with our listeners. And today, we are super excited to talk to Andrew James, PhD, an author and educator in the field of alternative sexualities. Um, He's the author of six books on alternative relationships and sexuality, including the super wonderful Erotic Slavehood, as Christina Abernathy, and The Way of the Pleasure Slave, um, a trans man who identifies both as a master and a daddy. AJ has been involved in the DS and kink scene uh, since 1992 and has been in a 24-7 authority transfer dynamic with his wife for eight years. While he has dabbled with rope for several decades, Andrew has had a deeper interest in rope since 2013, and we are thrilled to talk to him about intimate and erotic slavehood and how rope can feature in, develop, and strengthen these types of power dynamics. So welcome, and thank you so much for joining us, AJ. Where are you speaking to us from? I am in Western Massachusetts, about two hours outside of Boston. I'm delighted to be here with you. It's so nice to have you with us today, AJ. So AJ, you've been in the BDSM community for a while now, and you're obviously well known for your books around erotic uh, slavehood. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your experience with kink? Well, I came out as queer uh, when I was a teenager, uh, but I didn't really discover kink until I was in college. So that was in the mid-1980s. So yes, I'm in my 50s. and it really started when a friend of mine uh, gave me one of Anne Rice's beauty books as a birthday ah. gift. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> so not the most realistic introduction to kink, but certainly inspiring. Um, and I also had a friend who was taking a course in Victorian literature. And one of the things the teacher did was give them uh, Victorian porn to read, yeah. which horrified my friend. Um, and so much so that she actually threw the book across the room at one point, and I went and fished it out from under her bed later and took it to my room and decided that I really liked it. <laughs> so <laughs> there was a lot of um, very kinky stuff in there. Um, I also was pretty involved in the goth scene. 
uh, in the 80s. And there was there was a pretty big overlap, I would say, between uh, goths, the goth scene and kink generally. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. There were I mean, there was a lot of people who wore clothes that might indicate that they were into kink. And maybe it was more of a stand and model kind of SM. But there were some there really were some kinky people there. So that was that was another little entree into the scene. And I didn't really start actively pursuing kink relationships until the late 80s. Um, I was in grad school by that time and living in a Midwestern city that I will I will not name, but let's just say it was not the happiest place for me. Uh, I was subjected to some queer anti-queer violence there. So as soon as I was able to, um, I got permission from my department to move to San Francisco and finish my dissertation while I was living there. Um, And that was really, you know, just I moved there very specifically to get involved with the uh, the SM scene and meet other meet other kinky people. So I moved there in 1992, and for a few years there, I was what I would call a professional pervert. Like basically, my whole life centered on SM in some way. Uh, I worked for a number of kink-related businesses. Uh, I was involved in clubs. I was involved in all kinds of things. I was a professional switch for a while. So I did both pro-dom work and pro-sub work at one of the dungeons in San Francisco. I worked as an assistant to some independent pro-doms who were working in their own spaces, sometimes traveled with those people to other cities to see clients. Um, I was a phone sex operator and specialized specifically in SM-related calls, people who had unusual kinks that some of the other phone sex workers were not prepared to take. So I would take those calls. Um, and that's also when I started doing a lot of freelance writing about, about kink and power exchange. I wrote the Miss Abernathy books in the mid nineties and also a few other books, most of which are out of print at this point. Um, and wrote for some magazines, newspapers, and even had my own zine at one point called the servants quarters, which was specifically for service oriented submissives. So that was sort of my, my entry into the kink scene. Um, then in 1995, I began medical and legal gender transition from female to male. Mm-hmm. And that's also the point at which I, I met my wife or the person who's going to become my wife online. She was doing a performance piece. Uh, she was a theater major at her college and was doing a performance piece on her relationships with trans men and um, what we call transmasculine people generally. Mm-hmm. And she put out a call for people to send pictures that she could use as, in a kind of a slideshow as part of her one woman show as her senior project. So I sent her a picture and she she told me later she got this photo and she was like, oh, he's cute. <laughs> 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 that was really, really funny. Um, so after she graduated, she moved to San Francisco and we met in person and we were both incredibly shy. Our first date was we went out to the Sanrio store to like shop for Hello Kitty paraphernalia together, <laughs> um, which, you know, like so cute. And um, yeah, but we eventually we had a, a mutual friend who kind of knocked our heads together. Well, it wasn't just our heads that she knocked together. <laughs> but anyway, that's, um, And we once we started dating, we actually got engaged after six weeks. Kids do not try this at wow. home. It was a little crazy, but um, we just, we fell very naturally into a daddy-girl relationship and we're madly in love and still are 20 some odd years later. And yeah, so we got married in 1998 and then eventually uh, we had a child together in 2001, moved across the country and we have been living in Massachusetts ever since. Wow, that's so nice. So nice to hear. That's incredible. (laughs) We we um we were told that you could never power exchange relationship that um lasted more than two years when we uh 
got collared, so it's always nice to hear people are, you know, actually. Oh, but, you know, it, that's nonsense. Yes, we agree. <laughs> so, We're four years in and doing yeah, fine. Yeah, we, we found out that it was indeed, <laughs> as we suspected. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we did, um, we did take a big step back from the scene for... Um, about 11 years, actually. And that was really after our daughter was born. You know, small sidebar here. Um, she was a very high needs child. She She's on the autism spectrum, which is something we didn't know for many, many years. So we were we struggled quite a bit when she was young. And we really had to put her first um, and her care first. And uh, that meant stepping back from all the kinky fun stuff. Um, but by the time, once we, once we got things sorted out, figured out what was going on with her, what she needed and how to best meet those needs, uh, we really, in, I would say in 2012, we, we really started reinventing our relationship, um, my wife and I. And by the way, I may refer to her as my girl or my S type or my wife. That's all one person. We're monogamous. It's just the two of us. We did a, we had, we had reached kind of an impasse with our sex life where we were, we were both kind of burned out and bored and not, not feeling it anymore. So we did a, a, a month of sex challenge where we, we challenged ourselves to have sex every day for 30 days. Um, and that what that ended up doing was really putting us back in touch with our DS dynamic because as we grew closer through that relationship, we, it was like, oh yeah, we used to have this thing we did. We used to be daddy and girl. We used to have this um, this bond that happened in September of 2012. And then by the end of November, 2012, I collared her. And that was since then we have, we have been in a 24 seven MS dynamic. Okay. Fantastic. Um, we've talked a bit about our power exchange, um, in one of the previous episodes and I'll link to that in the show notes, but what does power exchange mean to you? Well, I usually talk about authority transfer specifically, which is just another term people use a lot of different language for what it is that we do. So total power exchange or total authority transfer or authority imbalance dynamics is something I've recently heard. Unequal partnerships, consensual hierarchical relationships, and on and on and on, right? So what I usually say is we, I just use, usually use the term MS, um, MS being short for master slave or whatever titles fit in to that for a given person or for a given couple. And I really see it as a sort of division of labor in the relationship. So the analogy that I usually use is that the M type or the left side of the slash person is kind of like a CEO. So their job is to have a vision and uh, make sure that that vision is consistent, have some goals, have, a, have an orientation for the relationship itself. And then the S type is like the COO. So their, their job is to get the things done. So the, the M type directs and the S type executes whatever's going on. I mean, that's not a very sexy analogy, business language, you know, <laughs> but it, it does. I think it helps some people who are outside of these relationships to see how they actually work in real life. That it really is. I do not, in fact, have her, you know, tied to the bed all day or anything like that. We have lives. We have all these things that we have to do. Um, the other thing for me is that my my take on MS is very cooperative. Um, it's not an adversarial relationship. I think sometimes people get the impression that there's sort of, you know, down on your knees, lowly worm, you know, that sort of almost the stereotype of the dominatrix or something like that. And that's not that's not the way it works. It certainly doesn't in my relationships. 
um, I, it's really important to me to that my girl be happy and that she, you know, if I have a goal for us that she, there's buy-in there on her side. Um, so it's my job to make decisions. And I ask myself a lot of questions about how my decisions are going to affect her. So that's my first priority is her well-being. So am I protecting her? Um, am I letting her feel my, my guidance, my dominance, um, my caring for her by meeting her physical needs and her emotional needs? Um, and any choice that I make, I ask myself, is this going to bring us closer? Is this going to increase trust and intimacy with us? Is those are my intimacy is my keyword. That is the thing that really defines MS for me. Hey guys, this is Fox coming in for a short break. We really love making this podcast and sharing it with you. But your support can really help us pay for the hosting, the equipment, and other critical costs. So if you like this podcast and you want to support us, you can do so at ropepodcast.com. You'll find ways to buy rope tutorials and gear, so we get a small commission from your purchase at no extra cost to you. In addition, you could also donate to us directly on our Patreon, either as a one-off amount or monthly support that can be as little as the price of a cup of coffee. If you can't afford to do that, that's okay. Just enjoy the podcast and maybe tell a kinky friend or two about it. Now back to today's episode. So how does uh, Rope feature in your journey since we are, after all, on the Rope podcast? Yes. Yeah. I started out with learning sort of what I would call the, the, the kind of SM101 level of Rope um, back in the 90s. I took an SM101 class with uh, Patrick Califia, whom some people may know as a, he's, he's a, uh, a well-known author. Um, and then when I was in the pro scene, of course, I got a lot more experience. I never specialized in rope specifically, and neither did any of the, the dominants that I worked with. But um, the thing is that at that point, just in the time and place that I was, I feel like rope was more about tying people down than tying them up. If that makes sense. Absolutely. The idea is that you were, it was about restraint basically for impact play. So I am very fond of caning. Caning makes people squirm away. It's, it's kind of a physical reaction. You can, you really can't stop yourself from trying to get away from a cane or if you can, then I hats off to you because I never could. <laughs> but anyway, so a lot of it was about let's tie the bottom down firmly so that they don't wriggle away at the point when the cane is coming down and hits them in the wrong place, you know, so things like that was very, very practical. Um, and honestly, I have to say there were some people that I knew who were fantastic rope tops, really innovative people. Um, you know, this is a point when, when Midori was first becoming known um, in the nineties in San Francisco. Um, and there were a few other people, people like Kay Buckley or, um, Lou Duff, whom uh, more people should know about. Uh, Lou is one of the people who developed that the sort of the rope corset with reverse tension that so many people see. Yeah. That was something that Lou created in the 90s. Beautiful stuff. But I was kind of honestly kind of intimidated by all that. It seemed really complex. Um, there was a lot of kind of, you know, ooh, Japanese stuff, very technical, very scary, very foreign. So I honestly shied away from it. And one of the things that when, when, um, my wife and I kind of reinvented our relationship. We, we decided that we were going to come back and kind of wipe the slate clean in terms of kinks. We were going to just sit down with one of those lists, the yes, no, maybe lists that you find all over the place and say, you know, we kind of knew what our tastes were and what they had been, but we were older and there was a lot more 
educational information out there. So one of the things that both of us checked off really highly is, yeah, I'm really interested in this. I want to know more was rope. Um, so we went after that kind of with a vengeance and like went to a bunch of different classes, studied with people who are, were teaching in, you know, New York area and Boston area. We, t- yeah, we took classes, we read books, we experimented and just absolutely fell in love with rope. Fantastic. That's and how, amazing. how did you then integrate that uh, rope into your power exchange relationship? It's, I should say a little bit, I think about kind of the nature of our relationship. I mean, I, I referred to this before with division of labor and all that sort of thing. But I think um, many S-types come at their role from either from a service perspective or an obedience perspective. Those are the two big categories that I see. Um, so for service, you might have people who do domestic service, for example, or what I would call fetish service, so leather care or cigar service and that sort of thing. And my girl is much more a, the, the term we use is she's the bringer of whimsy. And this is a, a phrase we got from a friend of ours. Her job really is to bring beauty and pleasure into my life. She is not particularly service oriented. If anything, I'm the person with the service orientation in the relationship. Um, it's part of my daddy identity actually is, is mm. caring for and doing for her. Um, so she kind of has more of a, yeah, we talk a little bit about the pleasure slave and the sort of the courtesan archetype. Um, she's, she's my rope muse, if you will. So some of the things that she does have to do with, you know, to the extent that she submits, quote unquote, as she always says, it doesn't feel like submission. Like, why would I want to say no to this? This is rope. This is wonderful. <laughs> this, is all, this is just pure joy often. However, you know, she has certain, there are certain things that I like to do with rope that are maybe not her favorite thing. So sometimes, for example, um, she does not love Ichinawa. Mm-hmm. She really likes to have rope put on her and feel that rope for a while and have it be in place and constant moving, the kind of dance of Ichinawa kind of frustrates her. I on the other hand love it. (laughs) I really love doing it. I think it's, you know, so there are times when it's like, look, this is a service you're going to provide for me. I want to play with rope in this way and you're going to enjoy that. She's like, okay, I will do that. And she can, you know, obviously, Again, we're not doing anything that she truly, truly hates. Um, you know, this is not this is not meant to be anything other than pleasurable, ultimately. And then there's some ties that, you know, for example, I really like decorative rope clothing, doing the kind of erotic macrame kind of stuff, the corsets and the, all of that fancy stuff. And she, you know, again, she finds that somewhat boring sometimes. You know, she's like, oh, safe word beige for boredom. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, she likes the results and she likes that I like the results, but maybe those aren't her favorite ties. Um, so that is that is sort of a service, I would say. Um, the other thing is that she's, uh, you know, we do kind of labbing, you know, this sort of experimentation and practice stuff. And so she becomes my lab rat at that point, just letting me play around with rope and, and just being kind of the the, the quiet mannequin almost to let me to let me do that and also of course giving feedback about what she likes what she doesn't like how things feel and so on um and then the other thing that we've been doing a little bit is experimenting with her tying me 
as a service because for two reasons. One, I want to know what this feels like. You know, I think it's important for me to know what it feels like to be in rope. So I also have been uh, experimenting with a lot of self-tying recently to just partly to get that sensation. Um, but also I have an anxiety disorder and we're in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> so my anxiety is through the roof. And this is her willingness to, you know, to do even a fairly simple tie on me is, is a tremendous service to me really is, um, it means a great deal because I find it incredibly soothing and calming to have, to have rope on my body. Okay. Fascinating. So you're using rope there to meet the different emotional needs of both of you in very different ways. Exactly. Hmm. So how can um, a rope top demonstrate that strong power exchange in a scene as a, a left-hand side of the slash person? Well, I think, I think a lot of that depends on what, well, first of all, the purpose of the scene, you know, what kind of scene are we talking about? Um, and just the tastes and the motivations of the people involved. But it really depends on what, what says dominant to both people. So an analogy I would use is that if you are trying to, as a dominant, have your body closer to your partner's body, there's several ways you can accomplish that. You can say to them, come here, right? Or you can step closer to them, or you can pull them closer to you. And those are three very different feelings, right? So you'd have to kind of figure out what, what it is that works there. One thing that my girl and I have talked about quite a bit is the need for there to be trust so that the, that the dominance can come through because it's really possible for a submissive to, if they don't feel trusting and open to, in a sense, block a dominance intention for the scene, if that makes sense, by not, by not submitting, by not being able to relax into it. So I think things that can instill trust are going to help the power exchange element. So things like even simply the, the dominant being feeling competent and confident and maybe having, having good rope handling skills, um, or working toward having a lot of fluency with the rope, um, things like just a very, a very basic thing, have a plan, you know? <laughs> go into the scene with a plan. I mean, sometimes it's nice to just walk in and you're inspired and you do something, but I think it's really easy to, to get, um, if you're excited or nervous to kind of go blank and be like, okay, there's this beautiful woman and there's this rope. What the heck do I do? You know? So have a, have a plan. And also honestly, the other thing that instills trust is really good aftercare, you know, knowing what your, what your partner needs and what you need and making sure that that happens. Um, I think the other thing, and this is something that, um, yeah, again, my wife and I were talking about, she really says that she appreciates vulnerability in a top. Like she really is for her having a person be authentic instead of, you know, marching in and being all Mr. Domley pants, you know, the, um, that to her is actually really sexy and really, um, again, she almost feels more dominance when a person admits that they, maybe they made a mistake. Maybe they need to redo that tie. Maybe they are, they're willing to laugh at themselves even and just have fun with what they're doing. Um, I think those, those things matter too. And it's something we overlook in the, in the, in the sort of the desire to be the perfect dom, the good dom. 
that, yeah, we all mess up sometimes and it's totally okay. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. And from the other side of the equation, for our listeners who are more on the S-type side, so who, who have more of a submissive feeling, how do you think they can best express that tendency in the way they are tied in rope? I think I would, what I would say is that there is a difference between yielding, submission as yielding, and being passive. So there is, um, I mean, you've probably heard this, that some people say that, that sometimes you try to tie someone and it's like a, they're like a sack of potatoes. Yep. You know, that there's, they're not, they're, in a sense, they're just kind of limp and not, not reacting. Um, so I think having the sense that what you're, you're, you're in something together, it's not just that some, the dominant is doing something to you, that the top is, you know, that you are, you're just reacting. But the idea that you're being led. So if you think about it in terms of dance, um, there's a person, you know, certain types of dance, somebody is leading and somebody is following, but they're both dancing together. And if the person who is following isn't doing their part, then you don't have a good dance. And in fact, there's, there's that old joke that, you know, when Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers danced together, Ginger Rogers did everything that Fred Astaire did backwards and in heels. <laughs> and honestly, I think that for rope bottoms, that that's kind of a good analogy. It's like, you're, you're not just standing there having somebody put rope on you. Right. So I think having there is the more interaction there can be, the hotter it is for one thing. And I think the more successful. So, you know, responding with gestures and, and words, sounds, you know, the sigh, that, that happy sigh, or even the little whimper that that's hurty, but it hurts. It hurts good. You know, that's yeah. hot. That's really it hot. It definitely is hot. Um, and I think also assuming the person is not blindfolded, um, using your eyes. I mean, one of the things about rope scenes is that they often take place with a little more light than some other kinds of play. You know, it's really hard to do rope in the dark. <laughs> you have to have a little bit of light on. So you can actually see the person's eyes. And for me, that is, um, that's incredibly erotic. Just the, mm -hmm. the, the pleading look or the loving, the, the look that's full of desire. That just, yeah, that just sends me over the moon. So mm -hmm. we're going to pause here, dear listeners, because we definitely got a lot of interesting answers from AJ. So we're going to make this interview into a two parts episode. So tune in with us again for the next episode to be able to hear the rest of what AJ had to share. In the meantime, you can find ways to support The Rope Podcast by visiting ropepodcast.com. And you can also find us on FetLife where we are Rope Podcast. Thanks for listening. And have fun tying.